Born in a war-torn Iraq under American occupation, ISIL's toxic blend of military know-how and potent ideology set off to conquer the Middle East. The US had dismantled the Iraqi state, purged its leaders, and disbanded its army. Those ex-Saddam soldiers lost their jobs, but kept their guns. And many of them, bitter, angry, and unemployed, joined forces with self-styled jihadists to go to war. ISIL is a direct outgrowth of al-Qaeda in Iraq that grew out of our invasion. Today, their campaign of terror has redrawn borders, deepened Sunni Shia divisions, and struck targets worldwide. Many blame my guest for Iraq's descent into chaos. This is not a country in anarchy. He was chosen by President Bush to rebuild the country. Thanks for taking this on. I'm proud of you. But his critics called him a colonial viceroy, a dictator, the man who broke Iraq. I leave Iraq gladdened by what has been accomplished and confident that your future is full of hope. I'm Mehdi Hassan, and today I'll go head-to-head -head with Paul Bremer, appointed by George W. Bush to run the US-led coalition provisional authority in the wake of the Iraq war. I'll be asking him how personally responsible he feels for the birth of ISIL and for the hundreds of thousands of deaths in that country. There's no panel, no audience, just me and him. Paul Bremer, thanks for joining me on Head to Head. Um, there are some who would say that the decisions you took in Iraq in 2003, after the invasion, led directly, or indirectly even, to the rise of groups like ISIL, that you're, in a sense, the father of ISIL. What do you say to them? I say it's nonsense. You say it's nonsense? Kofi Annan, the then UN Secretary General, who's one of those people, he said earlier this year, you cannot disassociate the situation in Iraq today from the US intervention of 2003 because the link is clear. Even Tony Blair, one of the Iraq invasion's most ardent defenders, uh, listen to what he told CNN. You can't say that those of us who removed Saddam in 2003 bear no responsibility for the situation in 2015. Your response to Annan and Blair? Well, I think it's important to remember that ISIS didn't come out of nowhere. It's basically Al-Qaeda in Iraq version 3. There was a, a, a terrorist group called Ansar al-Islam that was active when I got there in 2003. It was succeeded by Al-Qaeda in Iraq, which was defeated by the Iraqi army with American help in 2009, and now there's ISIL. Now, you could say, well, none of this would have happened if Saddam Hussein were still in power, but that's an argument for leaving Saddam Hussein in power. I don't accept that. I think Iraq is much better off without Saddam Hussein today than it would be if he were still in power. And by the way, I think American interests are better served without Saddam Hussein. I think the argument that the critics make is not that it was simply a matter of getting rid of Saddam, and that's a, a different debate which we won't have on this show, but it's more about what happened after Saddam fell. The decisions you took directly led to people joining up with such resistance groups, becoming part of an insurgency. You don't accept that that had a connection. You say there's no evidence that you've seen to the rise of al-Qaeda in Iraq and then the rise of ISIL that you see today. Well, there's a connection between the rise of ISIL 
and the rise of al-Qaeda, al but not between your decisions, and but not between your handling of Iraq. I, I see. I, I, because I, I what's interesting about your record in Iraq is it's not just left-wingers or anti-war liberals or Democrats who have criticized you, as you know. Your fellow Republicans have taken shots at you as well, who supported the war. Newt Gingrich, former Speaker of the House, he described you as, quote, the largest single disaster in American foreign policy in modern times. Why would he say that? Well, I suppose because he believes it. Uh, but why? why, why I mean, he has a right to that opinion. I, it's not. It's a pretty it's strong opinion. The he, largest it, single it disaster. It not the second, not the third. You're well, the biggest disaster. I've been disaster. a lot worse that aren't on the record. Okay. Uh, but, uh, he's entitled to his view. It's one I don't share. Okay, well, let's get into some of the background, which has produced some of those criticisms. I want to put three of the main criticisms that have been leveled at you over the past decade, three things you did as head of the Coalition Provisional Authority that have been tied directly or indirectly to the rise of ISIL today. The so-called debathification order, the disbanding of the Iraqi army and the setting up of the Iraqi political system, some would say on sectarian lines. Uh, let's listen to you speaking back in May 2003. The Coalition Provisional Authority disestablished the Ba'athist Party on April 16th. Shortly, I will issue an order on measures to extirpate Ba'athist and Ba'athism from Iraq forever. We have and will aggressively move to seek to identify these people and remove them from office. That very controversial debathification decree that you issued, I think less than a week after arriving in Iraq in May 2003, ended up purging uh, former members of Saddam Hussein's party from public service. Tens of thousands of people, school teachers, civil servants, engineers, uh, lost their jobs. Many of them weren't hardcore Baathists or Saddamites, but they were, of course, Sunnis who became further marginalized in this new Iraq. Ricardo Sanchez, who was the general, the US military commander on the ground, he called your debathification policy, quote, a catastrophic failure. Uh, the debathification uh, decision was made on recommendation of the thousands of Iraqis that the State Department had consulted with before the war in the years 2001 and 2002. There was no dispute about the fact that, that something had to be done about the party. The debathification decree uh, that I issued was carefully drawn to affect only 1% of the Ba'ath Party, about 20,000 people. The mistake I made, and I have freely admitted it, was I said we, we're not going to be able to make the fine distinctions about whether Abdul joined the Ba'ath Party because he believed in its mm. ideology or he joined because it was the only way to get a job. I said we're going to have to turn it over to Iraqis to make those distinctions. The mistake I made was turning it over to Iraqi politicians who then did what you said. They then applied it to teachers and people who were not part of the original decree. And as they were doing that, what original were you doing? Decree. Just watching? No. I pulled it back. I had to reverse the decision of the Iraqi Debathification Council. I put, worked with the Minister of Education to put 11,000 teachers who had been inappropriately affected back to work, and I took the, uh, the authority back from, uh, from the Iraqi uh, politicians. What I should have done is I should have found some Iraqi judges, and there were plenty of judges uh, who Saddam paid no attention to because he didn't use the court system. I should have put a panel of judges together who could have made those distinctions and who could have kept it from becoming a political football. Some say you should have also listened to your own advisors who you found in Baghdad working for the US. General Jay Garner, who was the director of the Office for Reconstruction and Humanitarian Assistance in Iraq when you arrived there, he said he tried to persuade you to soften the debathification order, but you said to him, quote, I'm not asking for your advice. The CIA station chief told you not to do it. He warned you, if you do this, you're going to drive 30,000 to 50,000 Baathists underground by nightfall. And you reportedly replied, it's not open for discussion. Do you wish you'd done a little bit more discussion before you made no, such 
such a controversial fact, decree. In matter of fact, what I did do, they were intending to issue this decree even before I got to Iraq, and I said to the Defense Department, I think I should get out there and talk to some of the other people about whether we should do this or not. That's why it came a week but later. A week? That's you did a week of talking for such a major move. Uh, a week's not very long, bath, some would say. The Ba'ath Party mm. had already been outlawed okay. by General Tommy Franks a month before that in the freedom message he issued on April 10th, 2003. Yes. The only question was, there was, it was clear the Ba'ath Party was going to cease to exist. It had already ceased to exist. The question was, what do we do with the members who are the top members? Yes. And the decree was drafted intentionally to affect only the top members, 20,000 yeah. people, is what the station chief told me, not 20 to 50 or whatever that 30 to 50,000, he didn't what say. What he said to me was 20,000, which, con which conformed with what I had heard from the Pentagon. So you're saying you didn't disregard their advice. The advice as they relay is not what you remember well, them saying to you. Correct. Okay. You gave a second order in May 2003, less than two weeks after arriving in the country, to disband and dissolve the Iraqi army. General Colin Powell, Secretary of State at the time, says he wasn't consulted right. on the decision to disband the army. He didn't agree with it. He said it resulted in Iraqi soldiers being left, quote, jobless and angry prime recruits for insurgency. General David Petraeus, who you've since praised for the surge, who went on to become CIA director, he says that the order to disband the army created, quote, tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of additional enemies of the coalition. And we now know that ISIL is full of ex-Iraqi army colonels, generals, majors. They seem to be vindicated. Well, they said. First of all, neither Powell nor Petraeus said anything like that in 2003. Well, you didn't tell Powell, did you? He said, I didn't know about it. Had you talked but to him, he might have told you that. My job was in Baghdad. My job was not coordinating the American government in Washington. My reporting channel to the president that he set up was through the Secretary of Defense. Secretary of Defense was fully informed, as was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Powell was Secretary of State. He's told me since that he did not hear about it, and I've said to him, Mr. Secretary, that wasn't my job to do interagency coordination. So, okay. fair enough. Petraeus was serving at the time in... Ba in, in Mosul. In, and he said nothing to me of, this, of the kind that he now says afterwards. So, it's important to take the decision in terms of the consequences at the time and, and the background at the time. I was told explicitly by the Kurdish leaders, they got rumors that some American colonels wanted to recall the Iraqi army. Explicitly, the leaders of the Kurdish uh, parties said, if you recall the army, we are going to secede from Iraq. The Kurdistan will have nothing to do with that. The Shia, who represent whatever, 60% of the population, were cooperating with the coalition, and they too heard these rumors that we were going to recall the army. And they said, that's basically creating Saddamism without Saddam. You're going to get another colonel the here. The Shias. The Shia. You, you and it was clear that they also would stop cooperating with the, uh, with the coalition if we had recalled the army. So the idea of recalling the army politically was a disaster. You say that the Shias were against it as well. And right, yet, right. Ali Alawi, who was Iraq's first Shia defense minister post-war, said your disbanding of the Iraqi army, quote, came as a shock to most Iraqis because it was difficult to, quote, even for the Shias to accept a wholesale dissolution of the armed forces and leave the country bereft of an army. Laith Kuba, who I'm sure you know, former advisor <coughs> to the State Department, became a spokesman for the Shia-led Iraqi government. He says that your measure to dissolve the Iraqi army was not a smart one. It alienated large numbers of people. I did not disband or destroy the Iraqi army. There was not a single member of the Iraqi army, a single unit standing to arms on April 17th, as General Abizaid has testified himself. The question wasn't to disband. That was a mistake. We should never have used that verb. The question was, should we recall the army? And I've given you the political reasons 
which to me were decisive then and continue to be decisive today for not dis recalling the army. So the argument that we threw a bunch of people on the streets, first is wrong, they were already go home. Secondly, that they had no income is also wrong because we paid them retirement and they were free to go out and set up businesses, they could set up newspapers. Oh, they were in a, in a, a war-torn country with a shattered economy, it wasn't exactly a, a free market utopia you know, at the time. Do you know, three weeks after I got to Baghdad, there were already a hundred newspapers being printed in Baghdad. Okay, so but don't, give, don't talk down to the Iraqi people. They were I'm, very, I'm not sure every soldier wants to become a journalist with respect. Maybe every soldier didn't want to be a journalist. Maybe some of them wanted to join a, an army against, against... Not maybe, they did. Maybe, I don't know. The, not, the during the time I was there, the evidence was very thin on that. If members of the army decided they didn't want to become journalists or farmers or set up businesses, which hundreds of thousands of Iraqis did in the wake of the freedom, and if they took up arms, it wasn't because they weren't being paid or didn't have alternatives. It's because they didn't believe in the future of a democratic Iraq. Uh, you say that at the time there was no evidence that they were going off to fight an insurgency. In your own book, you say that Sharif Ali, your negotiator with the Sunni tribes, told you in 2004 that insurgents in Bakuba were, quote, former intelligence, special security and military people who did not oppose the coalition or the Americans, but they feel left out of the political life and want to be included. That's your words in your book, Paul Bremer. Uh, that's actually Sharif Ali's But you're, relaying, you're saying no one told you at the time they were fighting. He came and told you. They're fighting against you, the people you sacked. We, we knew there were some of them there. But to argue that that was the, the motor force and for people to say it's ISIS today, it just simply so is Kofi not the Annan, case. So Kofi Annan, David Petraeus, Colin Powell, all the experts who study ISIS, they're all wrong to say Excuse me, that Kofi there is Annan, a link. Kofi Annan, who served as Secretary General while I was there, never raised this question with me. Neither did Colin Powell. Neither did David Petraeus. So, okay, so let's say they didn't raise it with you. Let's just look at hindsight. Okay, well, fine. I'm not let's, saying it. I'm saying well, it. They, they, let's well, say, let's say they didn't say it with you. You're right. You didn't get the advice you needed on that. Even now, today, though, they are now looking back in hindsight and saying, well, it was wrong. What you're doing is you're saying it's still right, even though the evidence shows right. that ISIL now is full of Iraqi ex-army generals, Actually, colonels, Actually, the majors. evidence doesn't show that it's full of them. And well, one study recently found 25 of the top 40 ISIL commanders are all ex-Bathists. Well, there may be some ex-Bathists, but they are, the people, they are people who obviously don't believe in an independent, democratic Iraq. If you join up with ISIL, you're joining up with a, an ideological organization that would overthrow everything that has been established in Iraq in the last 12 years. So I have no sympathy for those guys. I don't think they sympathy. They I think we're, we're wondering about how we got to the situation. Just to be clear on one last thing on this army section, uh, President Bush, when asked in 2006 by his biographer about why the decision to disband the army was taken, he replied, well, the policy was to keep the Iraq army intact. Didn't happen, Bush said. That's right. You went against the policy of your president, no, your commander-in-chief? that's in -chief? absolutely wrong. What he meant was, before the war, and that's been well documented, it's also in my book, before the war, they had hoped that the Iraqi army would be able to be used on reconstruction projects. That was the argument that had made, been made before the war. But as I said earlier, the fall of Baghdad on April 9th, there was not a single unit of the Iraqi army standing to arms anywhere in the country according to the general in and charge. And you didn't want to recall them, as you've just told us. You didn't right. want to recall them. Right. And yet the policy of the White House was, quote, the Iraqi army be maintained as an institution because we believed that it would be dangerous to put 300,000 men on the street with guns without jobs. That was the White House policy, according to the White House guy in charge, Frank Miller of the National Security Council. Well, but you did I, the opposite. I don't know. You put I don't men know. with I, guns unemployed I on the street. I have no idea what Frank Miller's talking about because my guidance came from the president, didn't come from some And the staffer. president told his biographer that you didn't follow his guidance. No, you, 
you've got to read the, you got to read the history more carefully. The he's quite right. The policy had been that there might be some use for the Iraqi army after Saddam was thrown out. The fact is, there was no Iraqi army afterwards. So it's all that's all a fantasy. It, well, that, there's no army Mr. Miller, whatever Mr. Miller's talking about. Has nothing there was to no do army with afterwards because the CIA and the no U.S. Army. told the army during the war and before the war, go back to your homes and wait to be recalled. You then didn't recall they them. did not say go back and wait to be recalled. That's you, what, you, that's, made that up. you made that I, up. I made that up. Well, you should talk to Colonel John so. Agoglia, who worked for General Tommy Franks in, in, in Central I'd be Command. I'd happy to talk to you any talk colonel to who wants colonel to talk. Colonel John Agoglia says our oh, policy was good. to drop pamphlets, do psychological operations, tell the Iraqi army right. to go home and wait for a time to be part of the new Iraq. And you're saying that that wasn't your policy. You didn't want it wasn't to call the them policy of the American government. The president approved the policy on disbanding the army. The secretary of defense approved the policy. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff approved it. The, the general, general the excuse me, the general in charge of the forces on the ground in Iraq when I got there approved the order. The Joint Chiefs say they never saw the order. Right. General of Powell course. says he didn't yeah. see the order. General Petraeus Powell says he not. doesn't agree with general the order. General Powell did not see the order, and I understand that, and I, he told me that afterwards. Sometime afterwards, but that wasn't my job. That's the job of the Do National Security Council. Do you ever think if you'd taken a little longer than two weeks, you might have got this right? No, I think we've got it right. Let's look at sectarianism. Today, especially with the rise of ISIL, there's much talk of a Sunni-Shia war in Iraq, in a country in which Sunnis and Shias had previously been coexisting, intermarrying for centuries. There are plenty of analysts who say it was the post-war Iraqi political system that you helped set up based on quotas, ethnic and sectarian, that has exacerbated and institutionalized sectarianism in Iraq today, to the extent that, as the Washington Post noted, even the Communist Party member of the Iraqi Governing Council was chosen, not because he was secular or a communist, but because he was a Shia. Well, actually, that's not right. He was chosen because he was a communist. He was also a very good member of the Governing Council. Let, let's look at what happened. What were the alternatives for a political structure in Iraq? First of all, unlike Afghanistan, there were, there were no Iraqi political leaders who had any uh, major support in the country. There was no uh, Iraqi Karzai. Secondly, the small group of people that the American government had been talking to before I got there, a group of seven, uh, was not representative of the country. There was, for example, only one Sunni Arab, so the Sunnis were seriously uh, underrepresented. So we had to work with the UN Special Representative Sergio de Mello to put together a government, interim government. He and I both would have preferred to put together what could be called a technocratic government, but the problem was there were no technocrats available who could stand up you, to the job. You sacked a lot of them by debuffing. No, them. I didn't sack them. In fact, what we found uh, in the ministries, uh, there's another myth going around that the, so I'll save you a question, uh, that uh, the debathification collapsed the Iraqi government. That's absolute nonsense. So uh, the question was, how do we, br how do we get to a, uh, a reasonable sized interim government that is representative of Iraq. Uh, the, the Shia uh, insisted that whatever we group we appointed, they had to be a majority because they are asserted, I think probably correctly, that they were a majority of the population. And we were trying to promote democratic rule. Then the Kurds said, well, we're 25% of the population, so we're going to have to have 25, at which point the Sunnis said, actually, we're a majority. We should have a majority. So the, the insistence by the Shia on having a majority set in train a path which regrettably uh, did exacerbate sectarian uh, tensions as time went on because 
Once the governing council was in place, the governing council then replicated these mm. sectarian... So you accept with hindsight that was the wrong way to go about it? It was the only way to go about it. It certainly was not ideal. Nobody has ever come up with a better way to have done it. Do you have a better idea? Have you read a better idea? No, but about I wasn't what to appointed do? to go to Iraq no, and consult with many questions. people. Well, you've done a lot of research. Why don't you have well, a better way? I do have a lot of research. Ali Khadari, who was the longest-serving U.S. official in Iraq, U.S. diplomat, former colleague of yours, he said you quote foolishly laid the foundations for a deeply divided, exclusionary, sectarian well, new Iraq. The, That's your former the, colleague. Look, nobody has come up with a credible way we could have moved. Other way we could have moved to democratic government in Iraq, other than appointing. A, an interim government. And nobody has told me how to avoid, in the face of the Shia, the Kurds, and the Sunnis insisting that it be representative of the percent of population they had, nobody has told me of a way to have avoided that. There, there was no... I don't say it's, it was an ideal uh, solution. It wasn't. The reason it happens to have been the least bad solution that we, that the, we could the, the reason out. you get so much criticism, I guess, on this is because generally the whole approach of the U.S. to Iraq seems to have been one based on very little uh, evidence-based research or actual investigation of what was happening on the ground. Uh, Peter Galbraith, the former U.S. diplomat, wrote in his book, The End of Iraq, uh, that a group of Iraqi Americans went to see George W. Bush in the White House shortly before the war. And after having a chat with him, they, it became apparent to them that President Bush didn't have a clue as to the difference between Sunni, Shias, and Kurds, wasn't even aware of how deep those differences were uh, within Iraq. When you arrived in Baghdad, were you aware of the differences between Sunnis, Shias, and Kurds and the history of Iraq? Well, I was as aware as I could become. I had served in the region, in Afghanistan, admittedly, uh, not, not an Arab country, but a country with also a small, very, in that case, a very small Shia uh, ethnic uh, or sectarian group. I had traveled as a diplomat throughout the region, though never to Iraq. I certainly did not consider myself an expert on Iraq any more than I do But given uh, today. those fissures of uh, underlying uh, I understood so much of this. that they were, well, no, they were, they were pretty clear by the time I got there. You didn't have to be, you know, uh, a genius to figure out. I had an extraordinary group of very able Arabists, both American and British, who were assisting me. So there was no doubt. Well, we, knew, we knew that we, that we had a problem. Maybe the president, maybe he, didn't have the detailed knowledge that Mr. Galbraith says he has before the war, but he certainly understood the problem by the time I came into government in May. In your memoir, My Year in Iraq, you recall a conversation with Sharif Ali, who had served as a negotiator with Sunni leaders in Anbar, and who told you about grievances and marginalization and warned you to expect them to retaliate, to get angry and, and, and retaliate in some way. You wrote that you told him if that was the case, quote, you'd better start praying for the Sunnis. If the Sunnis decide to use violence, there is no place for them in new Iraq. Surely, in hindsight, that was the wrong thing to say, given today's Iraq is all about who feels part of a new Iraq. Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't remember that conversation. The conversation... It's a conversation I, you wrote about in your book. Yeah, I don't remember the conversation. Okay. Well, I'm telling you the quote. Do you regret saying that? It's in your book. I'm quoting from your book. You said that they better pray for the Sunnis if they no, don't want to be part... It, they won't be part of a new a Iraq. It was a correct assessment. The Sunnis needed... And at that time, they were involved in, in killing Americans. The Sunnis needed to decide that they wanted to be part of a democratic Iraq, and most of them did. Most of them did. On that note, we're going to have to take a break. When we come back in part two of Head to Head, we're going to be discussing the torture at Abu Ghraib and how to defeat ISIL. Join us after the break.
Welcome back to Head to Head. My guest here in Washington, D.C. is Paul Bremer, who was President Bush's special envoy to Iraq and in charge of running that country after the U.S. invasion in 2003. Paul Bremer, I want you to listen to what President Bush said when he appointed you to be his man in Iraq back in 2003. Jerry Bremer has agreed to become the presidential envoy to Iraq. In selecting Jerry Bremer, our country will be sending one of our best citizens. He's a man with enormous experience. Uh, he's a person who knows how to get things done. When you arrived in Iraq um, shortly after that announcement, Paul Bremer, did you speak any Arabic? Very little. I, I spoke, I had learned some Persian when I lived in Afghanistan and I could make a salam alaikum and halatan tatur, which is the Persian version. Uh, I did not speak uh, much more in a few sentences. Had you served as an ambassador to any Arab country? No. And had you ever worked on post-war reconstruction anywhere in the world? No, but I had lived in three countries that had been occupied by the Germans and reconstructed after the war, the Second World War. So I, and if you live in those countries, you get a, a, a strong feeling of what it's like to be in an occupied country. So I had a sense, and I didn't like the fact that we were called an occupying force. It was something the lawyers foisted on us. Well, well it, was true. it was true. It was true, but you didn't have to be called that. Uh, the reason I asked those questions about your background is according to the Special Inspector General's report on the work of the Coalition Provisional Authority that you ran, you were seen as a, quote, diligent, intelligent public servant. But the report adds the choice of Bremer raised some eyebrows. He had never participated in a joint civilian military operation, had little experience in international development, had never served in the Middle East, and did not speak Arabic. Do you think you were the right man for the job, the best man for the job? Oh, I'm sure there were plenty of people who could have done it better. No did you question. not think, when President Bush came to you, did you not say, you know what, this is not my thing, I'm not, I'm not, I don't have the requisite skills? I've spent almost all my life in public service. I believe in public service. I believe it is an obligation of an American citizen to serve his country if he can. And I believe no American citizen should say no to the President of the United States unless he has some major moral or health reasons for doing it. So when the President well, Whatever job the President offers you, you take it, even if you're not qualified to do it? You'd be surprised how many people in Washington take that offer. I'm not, saying, I'm not saying it would be me. But you did, but take, you did take it in 2003. That's basically uh, what you're the telling The President me. of the United States asked me to undertake a tough job, and I agreed. I supported the President in his effort to get rid of Saddam, so I agreed that it was the right thing to do. Uh, I don't know why, in the end, I wound up on the short list, but I did, and I'm sure there were half a dozen people who could have done it better. That's not the argument. The question is, what did I do? How well did I do with the hand I was given? Okay, well, you've been criticized not only for the decisions you made as head of the Coalition Provisional Authority after the war, some of which we discussed, uh, but also for the way in which you made them. Uh, Muwafaq al-Rubai, who was a member of the Iraqi Governing Council in 2003-2004, later National Security Advisor, he says you told him that you had, quote, inherited all the power of Saddam Hussein. And when he asked you, what's left for us, the Iraqis, your reply to him was, you are my advisors. Did you see yourself essentially as a dictator? No, and as a matter of fact, I explicitly gave to the governing council uh, all of the authority to the only thing they couldn't do was pass a law they could pass laws or bills i had to sign them under international law i had the authority and the only authority to sign laws when the ministers were appointed uh, and they were appointed by the governing council not by me 
in September of 2003, I called them together and I said, you ministers are in charge of running your ministry. I will support you. And I never once overruled an Iraqi minister in a decision that he or she made in the next year. So we devolved full authority onto the Iraqi ministries and we tried to get the governing council of which Mr. Dr. Rubai was a member. We tried to get them to play a more active role. They, for a variety he's, of I mean, reasons, he's saying otherwise, but well, he can say otherwise. The, the, I mean, I have the records of the meetings of the governing council. So before you went to Iraq, you addressed a group of business leaders in the U.S. You said we're going to be running a colony almost in Iraq, a colony. Bad choice of words. Okay. Uh, isn't it ironic that you were the chief representative in Iraq of the United States of America, a country which claims to want to spread democracy in the Middle East? And yet in Iraq in 2003, 2004, it was a Shia cleric, a Shia Ayatollah, Grand Ayatollah Sistani, who effectively forced you to hold e elections earlier than you'd actually wanted to. You wanted to keep the unelected Iraqi governing council going until a constitution was written. Sistani wanted elections earlier. In the end, Sistani got his way and you didn't. Right. That's correct. I think on the whole, Ayatollah Sistani uh, played a constructive role in moving Iraq towards a democratic government. He, I told him often that I thought he really shared the view that the president had, and he was quite helpful. Uh, his insistence on early elections was, I think, a mistake, and uh, there was nothing we could do but about it. You were it. just saying to me earlier that what would you do instead? There was no alternative. How do we get a representative government? Right. Well, some would say the alternative was let the Iraqi people pick a government. You were stopping them from doing that. Uh, the Iraqi people had no way to pick a government. They had no constitution. They had no electoral law. They had no constituency boundaries. They had no political parties law. And yet they in December 2005, no, they had me, elections. Excuse me. And they yet had in December 2005, no, they had elections. Because we helped them get a constitution. We wrote a political parties law. We wrote a media law. We helped them figure out what to do about constituency boundaries. We put in place a political framework on which Iraq could build. And by the way, let's just be clear. Since then, they held a referendum in which they approved a constitution. They have held six elections. And we have just seen the fourth successive peaceful transfer of power in an Arab country, something that's completely unprecedented. Now, there are a lot of problems in Iraq today, oh. but I am saying that we put in place a political framework that led Iraq to a democratic government, and that that has largely succeeded so far. They've got real problems today, no question. Just sticking with what you did, not only were you not in favor of early elections, you ran the green zone in Baghdad, according to journalists on the ground, people who have written about it, investigated it, not with the help of experienced Arabists or post-conflict experts, but with young, inexperienced, ideological Republicans. A 24-year-old kid who hadn't worked in finance was asked to help reopen the Iraqi stock exchange. A 21-year-old young man who hadn't even graduated from college boasted that his only meaningful job had been as an ice cream truck driver was asked to help run the Ministry of Interior. Is there any wonder that there was so much chaos on your watch if these are the kind of people who were involved in well, the Well, those are not the kind of people. The kind of people I had, my British, my British uh, counterpart was a longtime Arabist who at that time was serving as ambassador, the, the uh, British ambassador to Egypt. I had on my staff a man who had been three times in Iraq, Hume Haran, the leading Arabist in the American diplomatic service. Ryan Crocker, who subsequently was ambassador to Iraq, was serving on my staff. I can go down the list. There was 24-year-old Jay Hallen asked to help open the Iraqi Stock Exchange? Uh, was 21-year-old Scott Irwin, the former ice cream truck driver, know, asked to work on the Ministry of Interior? You're I'm just making jokes. I'm not making jokes. I'm reading out the names of people. The joke is okay, that these people were asked refer, to do I, important work in a war-torn country. Some would say that is the joke. Look, 
are you saying that in no government there are people who shouldn't be in their jobs? Are you saying that I, I'm saying the American government probably doesn't have a former ice cream truck driver looking after the Department of Justice is what I'm saying. Well, but the Iraqi one did under your the watch. The man that you are so critical of for coming in to set up the Iraqi stock exchange did that and the stock exchange is still working today. So let's not be so sarcastic about somebody who's only 24. <laughs> former U.S. diplomat James Dobbins, who you took advice from before you flew out to Iraq, he says the CPA operation became an exercise in heroic amateurism in which hundreds of dedicated, courageous Americans went and filled positions for which they had not the slightest preparation. Well, I think that's true in some cases. I don't, I don't argue that everybody was ideally suited. I probably wasn't the best choice to head the place. But... On the whole, we, did, we succeeded very substantially. I've talked about the politics. Let me tell you what, you what we did with the economy, since you've now raised the question of the Please. economy. When I got to Iraq, the World Bank said that Saddam Hussein's 30 years had taken Iraq, which is a rich country, from the same level of Spain in 1980 to the level of Angola in 2002. There was no budgeting. There was no Sanctions had nothing to do with that. The acting minister of planning told me after I got there that they calculated that the inflation rate at the end of 2002 was over 100,000% a year. Their, their banks were closed. There, there was no system for transferring funds between the banks. Saddam Hussein, for example, cut the health care budget down to $13 million in a country of 26 million people. I raised that budget to a billion dollars. According to the World Bank, at the end of 2002, Iraq had the highest infant mortality rate and the shortest life expectancy of any country in the region. This was a rich country yes. until Saddam got his hands around it. It was not the sanctions. It was 25 years of corruption and misallocation of resources. We can argue about the fact that Saddam no, is an awful dictator. Well, that. we are going to argue because there are plenty of UN officials who say the sanctions did cripple the Iraqi medical system. I'm saying let's forget that. Let's say you did, you came in, right. you improved right. now, what let me you tell inherited. You what we did. Now, now let me saying. tell you what I'm we did. I'm saying the Saddam benchmark is a pretty low benchmark to use. Well, it's the benchmark I had. Fair enough. So take inflation. When I left, inflation was no longer 100,000%. It was 15%. Unemployment was no longer over 50%. It was 10%. I'm talking about June 2004. I had increased the health care budget from 13 million to a billion dollars. Infant mortality today, by the way, has been halved from the time I was there. We put in place a political structure and we improved the economy dramatically. One of the most controversial episodes that took place on your watch was the revelation of torture and abuse in U.S. detention centers such as Abu Ghraib. Let's listen to what George Bush and your former then boss, the Defense Secretary Donald Rumsfeld, said about that. I told him I was sorry for the humiliation suffered by the Iraqi prisoners and the humiliation suffered by their families. I told him I was equally sorry that, uh, that people uh, been seeing those pictures didn't understand the true nature and heart of America. I feel terrible about what happened to these Iraqi detainees. They're human beings. They were in U.S. custody. Our country had an obligation to treat them right. We didn't, and that was wrong. So to those Iraqis who were mistreated by members of the U.S. Armed Forces, I offer my deepest apology. Have you offered an apology for what happened on Abu Ghraib? You were the guy yes. on the ground? Yes, I, I, I went immediately that I heard about it uh, with General Sanchez, who was in charge of the American forces, to the Iraqi government 
and made my apologies uh, for what had happened there. Sanchez also made his apologies, uh, and it was, uh, it was a disgrace. You say in your book that the first you learned of it all was in January 2004. Right. Uh, yet in May 2003, the top UN official in Iraq, Sergio de Mello, raised his concerns with you about the treatment of detainees. In June and July 2003, Amnesty wrote to you letters detailing torture at U.S. detention centers. In November 2003, Iraq's then human rights minister says he asked you for permission to visit Abu Ghraib and you turned him down. Are they all lying, or did you just turn a blind eye to what was going on in these places? Well, neither. I, I don't. I assume they're not lying. Uh, the only one of those three that I have a memory of is the Ministry of, uh, of um, Human Rights, uh, and I don't remember turning him down. Uh, so then he is we, <laughs> we, the, first, the first time that we uh, knew that we really had a problem there was in January when uh, some film was released. I immediately gave instructions. I was in Washington that day. I uh, gave instructions for us to put out a statement uh, condemning it, uh, our military said they had an investigation ongoing about it, and it it then was effectively out of sight for, from us until I think it was in May or in April or May so that the that so the, the people who say they warned you about it, they're either lying or you don't no, remember I or don't, someone. I just I, the, I don't. I mean, Amnesty published I'm letters not, June and July two thousand and three, right, saying right. there were the allegations. Right. And, and, did and you investigate? Yes, on the we basis did. Of that? Yeah, I and did. You didn't find anything. No, but. <laughs> Were you in charge of the Iraqi prison system? Right. No, I wasn't technically in charge. I was not in charge. That, that is, that's actually wrong. The military was in charge. I was you not in charge. You said in your own memo that you were in full control of the Iraqi prison system. That's your memo, June 8, 2003, Coalition Provisional yeah, Authority. But the, it was run. The, the, the but you were in system, charge. That is correct that you were in charge. The system was run by the military. And I had frequent meetings with General Sanchez and with General Abizade about the reports and about the need so the and about fault. the need and about the need to reduce the number of prisoners we were holding we had no mechanism to even know who we were holding or how many people we were holding the people who were involved in the uh, awful stuff going on at Abu Ghraib were serving military officers no from that. the national guard i was not in the com chain of command for anybody in the military that was very that's very clear under american law so do you regret saying you were in full control of the iraqi prison system when you clearly weren't I meant that it was my responsibility to get the, pr the prison system set up and going. Because a lot of your critics, people who have reviewed your book, they say that the problem with Paul Bremer is on the one hand, he was this all-powerful authority. He said, I was the paramount authority. But when things go wrong, he blames the US military. He blames the Shias. He blames everyone else. I've taken full responsibility for the mistakes I've made. But, but there, you think there are I have fewer taken than your critics. Well, that's the problem. If you made a list of the mistakes the critics say I make, we could sit here for 16 hours. You wrote an op-ed in June 2014, which was headlined "Only America Can Prevent a Disaster in Iraq." As we've discussed on this show, many would argue that America created the disaster in Iraq. Let's put that to one side. What would you now be doing in Iraq that President Obama isn't? Well, I think there are three things in Iraq that have to happen. First of all, a much more vigorous air campaign. Secondly. Uh, we need to get special forces on the ground, and we need to get them integrated into Iraqi uh, uh, forces at the battalion level. Get them out front, and, and it's risky, but help them do with their planning, help get intelligence to the operators who are out there, and indeed conduct special operations forces. Thirdly, we need to get more uh, heavy equipment to the Kurds. The Kurds are the best fighting force in Iraq. They are defending a thousand-kilometer-long front in the end, I agree with the president's stated objective, which is, that, which is to defeat ISIL.
that's the right objective. That's, but that requires a more substantial effort by the America. You say you want to get U.S. Special Forces on the ground out front, you say. There are plenty of analysts who say that sending in U.S. forces boots on the ground is playing into ISIL's hands. Dr. Peter Neumann, a terrorism expert at King's College in London who studied the group extensively, he says ISIL is, quote, aching for a conflict with the West. He says the execution videos were bait to provoke an overreaction. ISIL spokesman Al-Adnani himself last year was taunting President Obama's airstrikes. He said, is this all you're capable of doing in an online video? Are America and its allies unable to come down to the ground? Why do you then want to give ISIL what it cl so clearly wants? I, I don't want to give them what they want. I want to defeat them. What, what, defeating by, by them is going to take... boots on the ground, which they want to do. They see we that have as another boots on the ground. We have boots on the ground. We have 3,500 Americans on the ground. How many do you want? I don't know. I'm not a roughly. military expert. I can't say. 100,000, 10,000, No, roughly. it's probably 10,000, maybe, maybe a few and more. And that will lead it's to the defeat of ISIL, which controls a third of Iraqi territory. You're a military expert, are you? No, I'm not. Okay. ISIL has the biggest weakness, which is a repugnant ideology. Iraqis do not support a group, and we, know, we saw that when al-Qaeda in Iraq overplayed its hands. Iraqis do not support a group that practices beheading, rape, and enslavement of women, Agreed. and crucifixion of children. Terrific. That is not the Iraq I know. That's not the Iraq I like. And that's not the way, the way they will take charge of Iraq. So they are weak. They need to be, like any bully, punched hard in the nose and be shown to be weak. And that takes a more aggressive American okay, policy. Okay, so on that aggressive policy, on the punching of the nose, I'm not a military man, but I can do basic maths. When you had 150,000 U.S. troops on the ground, you struggled to control that You're country. You're the one that's adding 150,000. No, I'm not. No, I'm telling you. I'm not you, adding 150,000. I'm reminding you that there were 150,000 troops on the ground when you were there. You didn't think that was enough. You wanted half a million at the time. You were criticizing Donald Rumsfeld for not having enough troops. You were sending him memos. Right. And yet today you think 10 or 20 20,000 will do the job that 150,000 can do against a group that's far more vicious, as you say, controls a third of the country? Yes. Really? Yeah. Well, I think we probably need some thousand more, two or 3,000. I don't know the number. You'd have to ask the military experts. It can be done. There is an Iraqi, an American-trained Iraqi army that is being reconstituted. That needs to be brought forward again. Don't forget, by the end of 2009, al-Qaeda in Iraq had been defeated by the... Uh, Iraqi army with American help. So it can be done. It doesn't need 150,000 troops. Okay. Before we finish, I want to remind you what President Bush said when he awarded you the very prestigious uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom back in 2004. For 14 months, Jerry Bremer worked day and night in difficult, dangerous conditions to stabilize the country, to help its people rebuild, and to establish a political process that would lead to justice and liberty. Given you received that Medal of Freedom from the president for, quote, stabilizing the country, for bringing about liberty and justice, given many would say Iraq today lacks stability, justice, uh, liberty, what do you say to critics of yours who say it's time for you to give that medal back? Well, I don't agree. Uh, it won't surprise you to know. Uh, I did those things that the president said. The Iraq that we were talking about at the end of 2004 and the Iraq today is indeed a democratic country. It's not stable. And it's not stable largely because the president's successor, President Obama, pulled the American troops out at the end oh, of 2011. Oh, come on, that was President Bush's decision to no. withdraw troops in 2011. You know that, and I know that. It was signed in 2008 by yeah. the President of the United States, yeah. George W. Bush. Right, but, but what you also know, if you've done your homework, as you appear to, is that President Bush intended to have 20 to 30,000 troops after uh, 2011 under a new status of forces agreement. 
President Obama pulled those troops, pulled all the troops out. Actually, and the Iraqi condemned. Democratic government that you praised said, we don't want them here, we're not going to give you immunity. No, Across actually, the spectrum, Kurds, Shia, Sunni said, we don't want American right, forces staying. Right. That's the government you were praising, a democratic government. You can't insist it, on keeping troops in the Prime Minister al-Maliki told President Obama he was willing to sign the Status of Forces Agreement. The American government insisted instead, against all precedent, that we would tell the Iraqi, Iraqis what their process should be, and insisted that that status of forces had to be passed by the Iraqi parliament. In any case, it was all an excuse used by Obama, because we have 3,500 troops on the ground now with no status of forces. So it, it is seen for what it is, an excuse. How long would you stay Look, in Iraq for? Forever? I would stay as long as American interests are served by being in Iraq. I don't know how long that would be. But that's not the question. The question about now, interests? that's not the question. I'm, I am a servant of the American government. So my perspective is going to be what is in America's interests. You asked a question about how long America would <laughs> I stay. I asked a question about another country, and you said American interests. I'm wondering about yeah. Iraqi interests. If well, they don't want American troops well, there, of course. who cares about American interests, Well, no, right? of course. You believe in democracy? No, of course. Fair enough. But that's not the case. Al-Maliki was willing to have the troops there. They're obviously willing to have them back now under al-Abadi because we got 3,500 of them there. So the question how long they should stay, they should stay until they achieve their objective, which the president states correctly, is to defeat ISIL. Um, you've said that going into Iraq and your year there was absolutely worth it. In 2004, you said that Iraq is a better place than it was before. Do you think the families of the 150,000, 250,000, 600,000 people who have been killed there since 2003, depending on which study or survey you choose to believe, do you think they think it was worth it? And do those hundreds of thousands of dead ever weigh on your conscience? Do they keep you up at night? You know, that's sort of a stupid question. Of course, somebody who lost a relative is not going to be happy about it. They might still think that Iraq is a better place. I would simply make the argument it is for the reasons I gave. Iraqi per capita income today is six times what it was in 2003. Infant mortality has Does been half. Infant mortality. Thousands of deaths. I'm just, you're, you're giving me statistics. cancel out Which is why I'm asking you about the deaths. deaths, and you're not answering about the deaths, you're talking about the economy. The hundreds of no, thousands of I'm deaths. Talking about do they weigh on you now? When you look back at your record, what do you think about those deaths? How much responsibility do you take for those deaths? Those deaths are not my responsibility. Of course, they I am. From an occupation of course, I am of. sympathetic with it. Of course, anybody would be. But you don't take any responsibility for them. I, what, for what? For what? Hundreds of thousands of dead Iraqis are of invasion and occupation there, there of Iraq that you were part of. No, I, you weren't part of it. I wasn't part of what? The invasion and occupation of Iraq. You were not the I was the I was certainly in charge of the occupation. I was not part of the invasion. I was part of the occupation. Look, what is the alternative? The alternative is Saddam Hussein, who killed at least a million and a half of his own citizens in 20 years before liberation, would still be in power. There's no point in, in kind of asking a theoretical question. The question I faced was, Saddam is gone, now what do we do? And I think on the whole, Though we certainly made mistakes, on the whole, we gave the Iraqi people a political structure that has survived the following 12 years. So far, we gave them a constitution, which is the most liberal constitution anywhere in the region. We started them on the process for economic growth. Indeed, I cited some figures about economic growth. They are, on the whole, better off. Of course, it's a tragedy that people have died, but that doesn't offset the good things we did. That's all I'm saying. Paul Bremer, thanks for joining me on Head to Head. Thanks.
That's it for our special show here in Washington, D.C. Head to Head will be back in the Oxford Union next week.